0: All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something.
1: Domo arigato, misuto robato. Domo arigato. Misuto Robato, Mato Ahima domo Arigato Misuto Robato Himatsu You're wondering who I am. Secret secret, I've got a secret. Machine or mannequin. Secret secret. I've got a secret With parts made in Japan. Secret secret, I've got a secret. I am the modern man. Well, actually I'm Sid Dober, the fishing professor. So welcome to the Inventive Fishing, Fishing Professor Rodcast, the smartest fishing podcast out there on the internet, or so I've been told. Hey, this week we're going to dig into some professor-level knowledge about fishing reels because I've got Ben Joyce, the Penn Fishing Brand Manager, in the studio, and we're going to learn a bunch about Penn Reels, one of the most iconic and classic fishing reel manufacturers out there, and certainly some of the reels that so many of us have depended on and trusted for much of our fishing lives. In fact, I'd be willing to venture that it is pretty much impossible to talk about fishing reels without talking about Penn. And then, in addition to talking with Ben Joyce about pen reels, we'll also take a bourbon break today, and since we're talking about classic brand with pen, I'll take a classic bourbon and offer up some thoughts about Knob Creek. And then to keep the loosely defined themes of classics throughout the rodcast, I'll take a look at my top 10 spoons for targeting redfish, because let's face it, casting spoons to reds is as classic as it gets. Because, like the famed Australian hairdresser Tabitha Coffey says, this is a quote, remember this, classics never make a comeback. They wait for that perfect moment to take the spotlight from overdone, tired trends. And we all know that this is true, true, true in all things fishing. But all of that aside, let's loosen up on the drag, flip on the clickers, and get ready for that big strike, because we've got another great rodcast for you today. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, my listening crew, we have got a treat in store for you today because we have Ben Joyce, the pen fishing brand manager in the inshore offshore digital studio to talk about that iconic brand of fishing reels. And when I say iconic, I mean that in the truest sense of the word. Now, a quick bit of history here. Back in 1932, Otto Hens, an immigrant from Germany, rented a third-floor loft apartment on the North 3rd Street in Philadelphia, where he built his first two fishing reel designs, the Model F and the Model K. Then in February of 1933, Hens sold the first pen reels to the Miller Auto Supply Company in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and the reels sold really well, so Hens developed two more reel designs. Now, the economic situation of the Great Depression forced a lot of families to take up subsistence fishing, and a lot of families turns to, turned to Hens's pen reels, which helped his company grow. Now, when Hens died in 1948, his wife Martha assumed the company presidency, and pen reels grew from a regional presence to a world leader in reel production. And now, more than 1,400 International Game Fish Association world records have been set using pen reels and Penn currently manufactures over 220 different models of fishing reels. And we've got Ben Joyce, the brand manager for Penn Reels, here today to talk about those great reels. Now, I've been fortunate to have filmed a few new product introductions with Ben over the years, and given his expertise and inside knowledge about Penn Reels, I figured it was time to sit down and have a longer conversation with him about fishing reels, because when it comes down to it, He is one of the most knowledgeable guys in the industry when it comes to fishing reels. So, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and for taking some time to be on the RODcast. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, I usually start the RODcast conversations with a question about my guest background information. So, if you would... Could you give us a little bit of that Ben Joyce origin story about how you got into fishing and how you got into the industry? And specifically, what do you do with Penn?
0: Yeah, so uh, my backstory goes all the way back to when I was a kid. Um, My family growing up, none of them actually really fished. Uh, my, My family was mainly a bunch of hunters. Um, so that being said, I was always outside and I ended up taking it upon myself. There was a little trout stream right behind my house where in elementary school and middle school, I would go up there and catch some of the stock trout. And I just kind of got that bug in me. Um, so that really kept going all the way through, you know, till today, if we're honest. Um, but as I got more and more into it, kept wanting to go out, um, as I got older, you know, got a car, obviously I could go a lot more places. So got pretty heavy in the bass fishing. And then, um, my buddy had a house in Wildwood, New Jersey, and we would go down there pretty much every single summer and striper fish and do all that type of stuff and catch a bunch of fluke. None of them were keepers. I don't think I ever caught a keeper when we were down there during the summer. Um, so really got into saltwater fishing. Once I had the access, uh, it was about a two hour drive from us. And as that continued and I got into college. I ended up getting pretty heavily involved in online forums, notably Stripers Online. That was the big one at, uh, at the time, and it still is. Um, and one thing led to another, and I actually ended up getting a private message from Penn on there uh, while I was in my senior year of college. They saw that I was local. I was only about 40 minutes from the factory there in Philadelphia and asked if I'd be interested in, in coming in for an interview on a real repair technician uh, position that it opened up, so went in. Uh, at the time, I was in school for geology. That's what I majored in in college. Um, I went in, loved you know the business, loved the position, the people that were there. So I ended up taking it. Uh, a week after I finished college, that's what I was doing. I was fixing reels. Uh, started on you know some of the general purpose reels, some of the some of the lower priced reels like a Pursuit or a Fierce, um, and did that for a couple of years. Um, so I did that for three years and then had the opportunity to take a uh, kind of an entry level brand management position. And when I say brand management, it's, it's not just pushing papers, but it's a lot of product design. Um, looking out at the entire portfolio of products that we have, uh, what's working, what's not, what do we need? Uh, what are our long-term goals in terms of technologies and all of that type of stuff? So I ended up uh, making that transition into that position, um, and that's where I am today. So I've been with the company now for about uh, coming up on eight years, actually a little over eight, and uh, that's what I do day in and day out. So my what I really do day in and day out um, is everything that I just said, but it's really getting in the weeds on all of our products. Um, so all the way down to the design on handle knobs to different features that we have on reels, uh, looking at this, the spec sheets and what we want down to the gear ratios and the inches per turn and weight targets and, and all of that little nitty gritty, um, that people end up taking for granted. You know, if people aren't talking about a certain feature on a reel, uh, it it can be a good or a bad thing if you want them to talk about it, um, then you obviously do, but things like the handle knobs—I'll just use that as an example. Uh, if nobody's bringing it up to you, it's a good thing, uh, because it means that they're not noticing it; it's not causing them any issue while you're out there. So there's a lot of effort that we put into the little things that people end up not paying any attention to. Um, but that—that's pretty much our day-to-day job, and obviously there is some pencil pushing stuff there as well. Um, you know, there's there's a a very long process to get a reel in the market. And I mean, we're working on stuff now that you probably won't even see for the next couple of years. Um, so it's definitely a long-term vision and it's, it's a fun job. I can say that.
1: Oh, I bet. I can't imagine how many people right now are so jealous of the fact that Penn reached out to you and, you know, got, got that kind of a dream job right out of school. That's fantastic. So yeah, what- Obviously, we're going to talk today a lot about pen reels, but before we dig into that, I want to tell you a quick pen reel story. You ready for a story? Yep. So like you, I became obsessed with fishing very early, which made sense because my parents loved to fish and my grandfather in particular, he was a really avid angler, but my grandfather was also a devoted pen guy, always talking about what great reels pen put out. But he was also a bargain hunter, and he would really just grab whatever gear he could when he could get it cheap. And my dad also had a tendency to be economic, we'll say, in his tackle purchasing. But at some point, I got the pen bug, and I bought into the mythology wholeheartedly, drank the pen Kool-Aid, and started really thinking about pen gear as the the top-of-the-line reels. So from the time I was about seven or so, I kept bugging my folks and my grandparents for pen reels. And on my 10th birthday, when I got home from school, I found a birthday card on my bed and in it was a note for my folks and they had written it and it said, we owe you one. And then a cutout picture of a pen rod and reel combo they had clipped from an ad in a newspaper. <laughs> a couple of days later, when I got home from school, laying on my bed was a pen peerless number no. nine loaded with black Dacron line on a six foot four guide peer rod. I think the pen nine was the predecessor to the current iteration of the pen general purpose level line. Yep. Now, yeah, I, I assume my dad intended me to use it for bottom fishing from piers and bridges or from a boat, but I learned to cast that thing and I would walk the beaches, casting that level wine conventional reel to work spoons for bluefish, bucktails for trout. I even caught a bass in a lake on that the first year I had it and that rod and reel, they were my pride and joy back then. And I still have them. They're sitting with all my other tackle. And I think I've said more than once to my family, to friends, that's the rod and reel I want to be buried with. So there's my pen story for you.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's, it's one of the cool things about being with this brand uh, is obviously, like you said at the very intro since 1932. So there are a ton of stories every time that I get to go into the field and talk to, talk to guys, um, inevitably it, it turns into a lot, not necessarily talking about product, you know, you, you do get that too, but the amount of stories that come out and the amount of the actual reels that people still have, um, and, and fish with to this day, uh, is really cool. And, and it kind of goes back to the, the basis of what we are as a brand. Um, and I've, I've been saying this for years, but we have to be very true to, to who we are. Um, we don't want to go out there and, you know, everybody's long-term ambition is to, to own the entire market. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, but there's also a reason why you have Ford, why you have Chevy, why you have Ferrari and Lambert, you know, they all accomplish different things. And if we're true to ourselves, uh pen as a brand is known for being overbuilt um it's known for being extremely durable serviceable you know and something that you're going to be able to hand down over the years um and i think that's what we're trying to build into all of our products today is you know the one thing that i always hear that people wish that that we had was lighter weight right um but you, you also can't have the extreme durability that we have out of our reels if we go down that road. Um, we certainly could do it, but you're going to be sacrificing something. And I don't want to be the person that's standing there with 30 pounds of drag on a big tuna. And, you know, because I sacrifice those three ounces out of the frame of the reel, have a, a catastrophic failure on your hands. Um, so that that's it's cool to hear you say that. I hear it a lot. Um, and the the other thing that we have is if you ever want to get that thing serviced, you can still get it serviced in Philadelphia.
1: That's great. Uh, I haven't used it in years because I'm trying to protect it. But if I ever need it serviced, I will. Yeah. Um, so what you're saying is there will never be pen light.
0: Uh, I'll put it this way. Uh, never say never. <laughs> However, when we're looking at designing new products, I would say it's generally not in the top three things that we're targeting. Gotcha. All
1: right, so let's talk about pen reels then, but I want to start somewhere that might not be where we would think we should start to talk about pen, because I want to start with pen's two low-profile baitcaster reels, the Squall low-profile and the Fathom low-profile. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is we're starting to see these baitcaster-styled low-profile reels gain popularity among saltwater anglers. This is a design that was usually used for, for bass fishing and certainly on the West coast, they're popular, even probably more popular than spinning gear these days. And we're starting to see them gain popularity among inshore anglers on the East coast. So tell us a bit about the low profile reels for saltwater and why they're gaining in popularity.
0: Well, saltwater is a, an interesting market in the fact that it doesn't evolve very fast. Um, You know, international reels, for example, have been around for decades and decades. And if it's working for people, they generally stick with it. And it's hard to break those um, kind of the things that people have come accustomed to. So the bass market for years has been heavily influenced. Uh, it's, It's kind of a global market. You know, you see other brands coming over the JDM market that comes from Japan, um, even some stuff in, in other regions through Europe, um, there's a lot of technologies and techniques that pop up that people grab grab onto right away. So where it really popped up with saltwater was people were realizing that, you know, if you're going to go snook fish, um, along the mangroves in Florida and you take a spinning rail with you, a lot of times those fish are going to, and this is just one example, um, but a lot of times the fish are going to hit the second that it, that your bait hits the water, um, and if you're using a spinning reel and you don't have time to be able to flip your bail over, you know you're out of luck. So what ended up happening was people started taking freshwater product and using it in salt water, and while it worked, uh, it generally didn't hold up very well. Um, the biggest markets that we really see, like you said, is on the west coast with the bigger sizes. Uh, the four and the 500 sizes. We don't have a 500 size today, but there are some on the market. Um, Then you go through the Gulf Coast and you have that inshore fishery down there. And then, you know, like you said, in Florida, um, there's another market there. So we realized that there was an opportunity in the market to make a saltwater specific low profile reel that gave you all the benefits um, of obviously being saltwater ready without the issues of having a freshwater product in salt water and and just one example of that is if you take a magnesium reel in the salt water it's essentially going to dissolve on you pretty quick uh, magnesium and, and salt water don't get along so we wanted to give people the product that they were actually not necessarily what they were asking for because they really weren't um, but it was a product that they needed versus what they were currently using and and to your point that market is definitely growing. Uh, more and more people are realizing that there are a lot of advantages to using those reels, um, for a variety of reasons. You know, you can cast them a lot better than a conventional reel. Um, you can obviously stop it with your thumb on a dime and, and engage it. The drag in a lot of cases is more powerful. Um, so that, that was really the genesis of those product lines.
1: Excellent. Now, I've had the opportunity to look at the fathom and it's just a, it's a really great, uh, great reel. I bottom fished with it in California and I'm hoping to put it to some work over here inshore as well. Yep. So given the diverse ways in which those low profile reels can be used, how do you recommend we think about pairing them with pen Rods?
0: Um, rods is an interesting topic because it's so individual, right? Um, especially when you're talking east versus west coast. Um, West Coast, guys, if if it's being used on the East Coast, they want nothing to do with it. Um, West Coast tends to be, or sorry, East Coast uh, tends to be a little bit more lenient on there. But we do have quite a few ranges of casting, or yeah, casting re- or rods and reels now. And we've been ex- kind of exploding uh, the portfolio that we have to offer in-, in particular on the rod side. We've had a lot of reels for years. Um, but we do have to react, you know, to these new markets evolving. So over the last couple of years, you've seen a couple of different ones come out. Um, notably, we have them kind of starting on the lower price. We have Squadron, then Battalion, uh, going up into the some of the Carnage inshore rods that were recently launched. And really, as you go up, it's, you, you not only kind of get, lighter weight, more refined actions, but you get a lot nicer components on there as well. And the first thing that I would say, which is most critical, is to find the right balance. So once you find what reel that you actually want, whether it's the two, three, or four hundred size, um, most of them, if you're and we'll just pick on inshore fishing for a minute, but if you're looking at the two and the three hundred size, um finding whatever balances outright is going to make your day a million times easier. Um, and then to take it a step further, you know, what exactly are you going after? If you need a broomstick to be able to pull a snook out of the mangroves, if you need, you know, a slow pitch rod for, um, for something else, we offer that. So we do have a whole bunch of options. Um, and I, I would really invite you to look at our website or anybody who's listening to look at our website and kind of see all those options that we have. Um, because we're trying to give something for all the techniques that are out there. Because we do have the technology um, to be able to design and offer all of those.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I, I will, just as a self-plug, uh, let listeners know that back in episode um, 1.19, Justin Poe, who is the Pure Fishing Rod guy, uh, was on the Rodcast talking about how to select those rods as well. So we can yep. pair up Ben's Ben's interview with, uh, with Justin Poe's and you can get the full spectrum of rods and reels.
0: So. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's worthy of note that I work really closely with Justin. Um, so as we're doing like, for example, the slow pitch, um, we had some slow pitch reels that were coming out. We obviously have the low profile reels like we're talking about now. And it made sense for us to do the entire portfolio at the same time with, with slow pitch rods. So we went through a lot of effort and we do this on pretty much every single one of our product lines. If we have a target, if he has a target um, for whether it's rods or reels, we make sure that we have the package that we can offer to everybody and that it balances and, and matches up perfectly.
1: Perfect. Excellent. All right. So let's shift over to spinning reels because this is an area in which Penn has built such a fantastic reputation. You know, I know that the Spinfisher series has been around for a long time. I've got a bunch of them in my tackle room from a range of editions. But the battle, the pursuit, the clash, the fierce—these are all fantastic spinning reels. Could you tell us about Penn's philosophy about spinning reels and how that philosophy plays out across all of Penn's spinning reels?
0: Yeah, so we have a pretty we have a pretty linear way that we we go about doing this. So we, in general, if you start from the very bottom, uh, we start with Wrath. And then we have Pursuit, Fierce Battle, Spinfisher, Slammer. And now we have Authority up there as well. There's a couple others mixed in, um, but really not main product lines. Um, anything really in that... I'll just kind of generalize the sub $100 price point. We're really trying to offer the best bang for your buck that you can get. And that's that's going to include your Wrath, uh, your Pursuit, and your Fierce. And then when we step up from that... Um, starting with battle, you're really kind of getting into that more commercial slash industrial grade style product. Um, And it's, and I'm including the lower price ones here, it's durability all the way. So that's why you're seeing things uh, like our DuraDrag come over from our international reels and start to trickle through some of our higher end spinners. Our machine gear technology has gotten uh, light years better over the last you know, five to six years since we introduced it originally on the first Clash, our ceiling, um, I would put it up against anybody in the market. And then, you know, just you put all of that together and you end up with products which are just overbuilt, are going to reliably do what you need them to do day in and day out um, and be able to keep doing it. So the downside with spinning reels, and if we're jumping back about 20 years, uh, was really why conventional reels were so popular, is that spinning reels, obviously, you have to, to go through a gearing system, which is not designed to be all that efficient. So when you're dealing with a big main gear, a small pinion gear, and you have to turn that big rotor on the top, you weren't able to really have all the same strength that you would get out of a conventional reel. Over the years, we've been able to really solidify the way that we transfer all of that power, and that allowed us to bring a lot of the drag capabilities from our bigger offshore reels into our spinning reels. Um, so when we first introduced the drag system uh, with Slammer, that was the first time where you were really seeing 50, 60 pounds of drag out of a spinning reel, which 10 years ago was unheard of. Um, and then once we were able to, to do that effectively, and, you know, get 20 pounds of drag out of a 2,500 size and 60 pounds out of a a 10,500, it forced us to start beefing up the rest of the reel to be able to withstand that. Um, and, And I say that because, and kind of the analogy that I use, if you take a smart car and a Porsche to a track day, they can both do 60 miles an hour around the entire track. But at the end of the day, one of them was pushed at like 20%. The other one was pushed at max. So it's not going to last nearly as long. Um, so we really do design our products to be able to do whatever is on that spec sheet that you read on the box, you know, the drag performance, um, the ceiling, all of that. We design them to be able to do that day in and day out. There are, I'm, I'm not going to pick on anybody, um, but sometimes just because something's capable of it doesn't mean that it's actually able to withstand that. So I think there's a differentiation that people have to make when they're looking at at purchasing a product is just because this little tiny baitcaster or whatever it is says that it can do 40 pounds of max drag doesn't mean that, you know, after two fish, it's not going to be wrecked. Um, and that's what we really pride ourselves on is being able to have the same real, you know, have it be able to function the same, feel the same, all of that after a couple of years as it did when you originally get it. Um, And then if something does go wrong, we can service them as well.
1: Gotcha. So clearly we're not going to have time to talk about how all that applies to all of Penn's spinning reels. But could you talk about the SpinFisher series, those SS models that have been so popular over the years and why they've earned the reputation they have and what changes have been made to the series over the years?
0: Yeah, so you go all the way back um, to the very first ones, the old greenies. Um, there are some of the simplest reels that you could possibly use. Guys are still using them. I grew up fishing them. I used to fill them with, uh, it was some grease that I found in my dad's basement. I would pack it full so that I could reel it underwater. You know, that was pre, uh, pre me being able to afford a van stall or anything back (laughs) in those days. Um, but they were extremely simple. They did exactly what they needed to do and they kept doing it. If, you had a failure while you were out there, four screws, you pop the side plate off and, you know, you're exposed to everything on the inside. So that was really what started kind of the obsession with the spinfisher back in that day. Um, and, and it did go through some evolution. It then became the Z series. It became the, the SS with the SS, the SSG, the SSM, kind of that evolution there in the middle. And then when we retouched it, a uh, couple years back, and it, and came out with the SSV. Um, that was really when we started putting the seals in there, because it was just the nature of what those reels were being used for in the surf. We wanted to better protect against, you know, obviously the the main thing that kills all reels, which is saltwater and sand. Um, so we wanted to protect against that. And then, really, since then, uh, it's been small evolutions from generation to generation uh, to kind of expand on what our initial vision was to increase um, the gear durability when we went from SSV to SSVI. uh, We added the machine gears. We beefed up the drag a little bit. Uh, We better sealed it. So we actually added seals around the rotor uh, when we went to the SSVI. So even though every time that we come out, and, and this point does apply to all of our series but whenever we come out with a new series it's not just you know a cosmetic refresh or whatever um there's always going to be small little incremental improvements that we add to them and while it might may not seem like a whole lot you know when you're reading the specs or whatever uh we obviously saw enough of a reason to to do those changes and to add different seals or whatever it may be um, to give ultimately a better product at the end
1: Gotcha. And one of the things that I've always loved about that series also is just the range of sizes, you know, down from a 1000 up to, uh, you know, 6,000, 5,000 size, giving you any kind of, uh, of strength possibility, depending on where you're fishing and what you're fishing for. Yeah. So, yeah, and we, we do try and do that across, you
0: know, the majority of our reels. Um, saltwater is so vast in you know, what you could catch you, like you said, you can go down to the really small sizes for, sea trout or whatever it may be and in the the same series have a big offshore reel that you can go catch a 200 pound tuna on a spinner so um we do try and give those sizes in each of the series uh, where we possibly can and it's really in an effort to to give all those options because you may want this seal rating or this gearing or whatever it may be um so having all those sizes gives the gives the end purchaser, all those options to be able to to get what what exactly they
1: need. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic stuff. So, hey, you mentioned the Authority, which is one of Penn's newest additions to the Penn spinning reel lineup. And certainly it's a reel that's designed to be a top shelf reel. Could you tell us a bit about the Authority and what sets it apart?
0: Yeah. So uh, we kicked that project off, I believe it was like 2018. So we've been working on it for a while. And our initial goal, obviously, it it kind of changes paths as you go through new product development. Um, but if we, you know, if I got in an elevator with you and you said, what are you working on? I'd say best spinning reel that we could possibly make right now. And, you know, uh, obviously, we needed to put all of that on paper as to what exactly that meant. But there were technologies that we already had. And then there were technologies that we had to go get. So what we did at the very beginning was we we sat down and as a team, we came up together of what are the key things that this series of reels absolutely needs to have? And all of them were best in class. um, But then where do we go and get all of those technologies? So as you go through the reel, um, our body and rotor strength, things like that, we already had that. Right. So we were able to take that from uh, pretty much slammer. Um. Obviously, it looks a little bit different, but we knew that we were able to withstand uh, the drag pressures, the gearing, all of that type of stuff with the slammer. So we were set there. The drag, again, slammer. When you get into the gears, uh, that was a go-get that we had to do. We had never done, at that point, a stainless steel gear set that we could, in theory, do it, but we couldn't make it feel good. So you wouldn't want to purchase it. Um. So we had... A couple years of development on that gear set alone Uh, the oscillation system it's a very slow oscillation we call it our level line system that's actually a technology that we pulled from clash so it was examples like that where we knew that we had all of these little tidbits and how do we pull all of that together into one package end up giving all of the different models that people would want so we have obviously the standard models from a 25 to a ten thousand five hundred. we have a couple high speed models in there as well Um, how do we get it all to feel really good uh, be able to achieve everything that we have on paper and then kind of the the key to all of it was the ipx8 ceiling so we wanted it to be submersible so our, our rating on this one is a meter deep for 30 minutes. Um, it's not meant to be reeled underwater. That's a different class of reel. But we wanted it to be that level of ceiling without feeling tight. We still wanted you to be able to pick it up and turn the handle and it feel like all of our other reels. Um, so there were a couple go-gets that we had to do, and our engineering team went after it. They did an amazing job. Um, And it was one of those product lines where we were very candid with ourselves of, you know, we can't be stuck to a timeline. We can't be saying X date is when we need to go to market regardless. Um, Instead, we sat back and we said, you know, we'll launch this thing when it's right. And when we get all of that put together and we're happy with it, then we'll let it go. Um, And that's exactly what we did.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of the um, press about it, and the it, it just looks like a fantastic reel, really top of the line kind of reel. Let's um let's shift out of spinning reels for a second. Let's turn to Penn's conventional reels, which again can really only be described in total as flat out iconic. I mean. The Penn Senator series and the Penn International series are as iconic as reels get. I remember as a teenager, always fantasizing about having a spread of big internationals across the transom of a boat, those big, beautiful gold reels, just projected big game fishing at its best. And of course, we add the Squall series to this, the Fathom series, and all the others in this list of Penn's conventional reels. And there's just fantastic reels here. So talk to me about Penn's conventional reels and the technologies that Penn employs to really make these as good as they are?
0: Yeah, so um, starting with the international line, um, and I'll clarify something, is that they are still made in Philadelphia. Um, We make pretty much all of our anodized, uh, whether it's the Torque, the internationals, all of those are still made up there. Um, And they're a very simple product. Um, A lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people actually hate working on conventional reels because things end up kind of falling out and all of that. But at their core, um, they're a very efficient, simple product. Um, And then it's kind of the way that you go about making that reel, uh, which results in the drastic price differences that you have. So we have reels that are under $100 with the rival and the warfare. Um, you step up then to the squall, which is basically a fathom, but it's in a graphite package. Um, There's a couple advantages to that, actually. Number one, it's cheaper. Number two, graphite does not uh, corrode. So that's the big one that you have there. And it's lighter. Uh, When you actually get to the internals of it with the gearing and all of that, most of those are honestly the same parts that we use in the fathom. When you then step up to the fathom, it is, in my opinion, it's the best really bang for your buck, go out and catch anything type of reel that we that we have and that's on the market. So it is a fully cast aluminum uh, frame plus the side plates. Uh, we make those in level lines. We make them in star drags, uh, lever drags, lever drag two speeds, you know, we... You want to talk about a lot of nuances between all of them. Conventional reels is where it's at. Spinning's a little bit more straightforward, but conventional has a lot of a lot of little variations. And then when you step up from Fathom to Torque, um, not only are you moving to the made in USA models, but even though they're both aluminum framed, uh, kind of light medium duty conventional reels, but you're moving into the fully machined. Um, The main difference between cast and machined uh, is really you get a lot more strength out of the machined uh, reels. And then when you step up to the internationals, that's where you really get into the big game. Uh, We have those in single speeds, in the two speed wides. We have the X models as well, um, and they go all the way up to the biggest iconic 130 size. Um, And then, you know, we do have some of the simpler uh senator reels like you said as well we still make them um and those are you know as tried and true of a reel i think as you can find
1: yeah that's those internationals and those senators are probably just the probably the most reliable reels out there so I want to get you to talk about one of the newer conventional reels, and this is a reel that I've been intrigued by, and I really want to fish with it, and that's the new Fathom 2 lever, the new Fathom 2, the lever drag 2-speed, and I'm particularly interested in how it differs from the first Fathom lever drag 2-speed and also the torque level drag 2-speed and the squall level drag 2-speed, and I'll say that I have two of the squall lever drags, but not the 2-speed, so how is that new, that new one different? the new yep. fathom 2 lever.
0: Yeah, so th- this was a fun project um in the fact that we didn't want to do it. And, <laughs> and I'll I'll put it this way. Um the first generation fathoms were probably one of the biggest home run conventional reels to hit the market in arguably the last 10 years. I've never you know, if you're looking at and this is kind of a broader stroke, but Fishing is gaining in popularity. Um, spinning reels have become overly popular as they've gotten the improvements like we had talked about the conventional real market um, is relatively stable. You know, it's you're only using them if you're on a boat. Um, they have a bigger kind of learning curve to get into them. So it's not you don't see these big swings all over the place. Um, and, and for the first generation fathom to be able to do what it did and grab onto a market with such a grip, um, made us very, very reluctant to touch it and change anything. Any Anytime that we change something, you're always going to have, um, people saying that we, we did things to save costs or whatever, hundred percent, not true. We're always trying to make a better product. Um, so I didn't want to touch it unless it was going to be a very meaningful change that was going to help the people who were using it. And we basically took our, we refer to them as our pen fleet, all of our pros that are currently out there. Um, and I talked to them time and time again about what can we do to improve this? Because it. I know it's not perfect, you know, and, and a lot of people were saying nothing, it's fine. The more that you poke at them, it's, well, you could do this. This is a little issue that we see, you know, as it's been on the boat for three or four years, this part wore out or the clicker went out. So it was little things like that that we ended up putting on a page and said, "Okay, you know, we can accomplish all of these. Let's go after it. So the first thing that we did um, was actually tweak our size and model offerings a little bit. Um, So there were a couple new sizes. We have a new 80 size, which is a bigger reel. Um, Our 60 went from a standard 60 to now a 60 narrow. So it used to be a wide 40 narrow to become the 60. Now we took the bigger 80 and made it narrow. So basically it became a better bottom fishing reel for some big fish. Um, We added a couple sizes on the very small ones as well. And then in particular, we had on the single speeds, we tweaked the specs on our high speed models. Um, So now we have true billfish models in the 40N and the 60N um, in that you really can't get over 15 pounds of drag. Um, It's optimized for about three to six for the sailfish white marlin guys. You're getting about 60 inches per turn. So it was really all of this little feedback that we took and then for the actual reel itself, it, it looks a lot different. It's silver. Um, that was actually due to a lot of feedback where it was, hey, I have this you know, big offshore boat. I like everything to match. Um, it sounds really silly to say that, but we wanted to give something to somebody that you could put on any rod, any coloration that you have on the boat, all of that, and it would fit in. Um, and then from a from a technical standpoint on it, The first thing that we did is we wanted to go with a one piece frame um, and palm side plate. And that allowed us to pull a little bit of weight out of the frame. And it also pulled all those screws off the palm side so that it was much more comfortable to hold and use all day. Um, We did change our clicker system. So now it's actually a modular clicker. Um, If it ever goes out on you for some reason, you can just pull the, the frame off of the reel and a couple screws on the inside. That thing pops right in right out and you can replace it um, and then on the crank side we went to a new pull to turn preset knob uh, which throws a lot of people off when they first grab it they think that it's broken that you can't turn it 100 intentional um, and what was happening is big boat whether it's diesel offshore you're running through waves If you didn't have a lot of pressure or if you weren't pushed all the way up to the strike position, that preset knob could actually walk on you a little bit. Didn't happen to really the majority of people, but it definitely did happen. Um, And it was common on the market. It's not just us. So what we did, unlike a spinning reel where sometimes people will adjust the drag while they're fighting a fish, is because you have the entire range of the lever um, while you're fishing you generally don't touch that preset. So we made it so that it would fully lock. You actually grab onto it, pull it, turn it, and then you can test your drag. And it's really a, a set it and forget it type of drag system. Um, And then the rest of it, like I said, we were reluctant to touch it. So the the gearing, the drag, all like the actual drag washers, all of that, we didn't touch at all. It's the same parts.
1: Wow, that's, that's really intriguing. And now that you say that here, you say all that, you know, I think I need to, I need to look at getting a couple of the Fathom 2 lever-drag two-speed reels. I love working with two-speed reels, and I really need to, to get my hands on these. I assume that because of the, uh, particularly with the Squall and the Warfare combos that are sold at box stores like Bass Pro, that that's also another big end to the pen, to the pen um, conventional reels as well. It is.
0: Yeah, and the, the squalls, like I said, they're uh, the majority of the parts on the inside are the same as Fathoms. You're just in a graphite package there. Um, so for for a real step up and a true workhorse, especially on a combo, um, those are an absolute great option. Now you don't you don't have all the options that you get as if you buy you know a standalone reel and a standalone rod, um, but the models that we do offer there are the ones that the majority of people want. Um, and they accomplish, you know, most of the general boat fishing that you're going to be able to do, whether it's bottom fishing, light trolling, whatever it may be.
1: Yeah. And those are just popular great reels and rod combos to just pick up when you're, when you're not hundred percent sure what you need either. Yep. Yeah. So, hey, just out of curiosity, I noticed the other day that the torque lever drag two speed have been on sale. Is this a sign that they're being discontinued?
0: Uh, No, they are not. Um, there was a couple models which we decided that we weren't going to move forward with for this year. So that's probably what you're seeing. Gotcha. They are sticking around.
1: Gotcha. All right. So before we move away from conventional reels, I got one more uh, kind of story to share with you that among the vintage reels that I have, I still have a Master Mariner 349. That was the narrow-bodied trolling lure that Penn started making in 57, but discontinued in the 80s. And I know that when Penn first made them, they had the maroon side plates, but they shifted to the black side plates in 1970. Mine has the black plates, so I'm assuming it's an early 70s model. I just love having these vintage Penn reels around. Yeah,
0: and it's... uh we could talk for hours if you want to get into the little nuances of the, the vintage stuff. Um, but actually in the, the Philadelphia plant, we have a lot of the old models. Um, there's a lot of one-off models, some weird colorations, um, and being able to kind of look at everything that we did back then. Um, you know, obviously that was a long time ago, but there was, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to see all of that. And then, you know, at the same time, People like you, and I was saying other people that come up to me, they they still have these reels. And it's not only a fishing reel, but there's also all this sentiment that goes with them.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things I, the reason I love that Master Mariner uh, is that it was one of the few reels back then that was designed for fishing wire rather than uh, Dacron or Braid or Nylon or, or Mono. Say it was designed for wire line. Yep that's really yeah, something that not many people do anymore. Yeah, no, no. All right. So there's one last reel I want to get you to talk about, and that's the Penn battle fly reel with, which if I'm not mistaken, is the only fly reel in Penn's catalog right now. And they it come is. in eight weight or 10 weight, but in some ways they seem almost an anomalous offering from Penn. Could you tell me about the battle fly reel and does Penn have plans to expand their saltwater fly reel offerings?
0: Um, I, I wouldn't expect us to, to really go and expand all that much, but what we wanted to do there was really create an offering that at its price was kind of like all of our other stuff. It was a really durable, uh, really durable product that gave you all the performance that you needed. Um, So that's why we did reels and we did the combos as well. Um, And in two of the most popular saltwater offerings in an eight and a 10 weight. Um, So really at its core kind of, following the same path as the battle spinning reel is it's it doesn't have a ton of features, but the features that it does have are executed very well. Um, So little things like it's a die cast aluminum uh, body on there. So it's extremely durable. Same thing that we have on the spinning reels, Uh, the way that the disc drag actually works. A lot of those same things and, and the materials that are in there are the same. Um, and then if you go over to, to the combo itself, um, it's really a a pretty forgiving rod, uh, in the taper that it has, uh, it's a little bit on the fast side and then it comes with that travel case as well. Um, so that you can take that wherever you want.
1: Very cool. I do have, I, I was just thinking as you were talking, I got one other quick little interesting pen reel spinning reel story for you, um. I remember when the pen battle first came out and on the spool has got those board holes all the way around it yeah. um, that I was actually fishing at uh, Sebastian at the pier there. And there was a guy fishing next to me who had taken the spool off of whatever reel he was using and drilled holes in it all the way around. And when I asked him about it, he said, that because the new pen had it, he thought all reels would work better if they had those holes all the way around the spool. So he actually bored them <laughs> into his uh his spool. So
0: that's pretty funny. And actually, one interesting note um just about the holes on the spool is if you look through all the offerings that we have, from the battle down, we have holes in the spool. From the spinfisher up, we have cuts, but we don't actually go through. And that's actually one of those little things that we try and do to eliminate water hitting that main shaft and improve on the ceiling is to not go all the way through that spool on anything that's actually sealed.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. I had, I had assumed it was just an aesthetic thing or an airflow thing, but that's really interesting to know.
0: No, we make a very conscious effort to not not put straight through holes on any of the, the reels that have a seal right there.
1: Cool. Interesting. So, Ben, we've covered a lot of territory today, and before I get to our traditional wrap-up question, let me ask for the insider scoop and ask, what should we be on the lookout for from pen reels in the near future?
0: Oh, it's a loaded question.
1: (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Um,
0: I, I would say, you know, if you look at the last, I'll put it this way. If you look at the last five years and the stuff that we've come out with and the improvements in the areas that we've been focusing on from a from a technology standpoint, from a model offering standpoint, and all the things that we've been working on, I would expect us to be doing the same thing over the next couple of years and not take our foot off the gas.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're going to keep our eyes out for stuff. So that does bring us to the Rodcast wrap-up question. So what I want to know is, what is Ben Joyce's grail fish? What's the bucket list fish that's still out there for you? Blue marlin.
0: Excellent. Actually, two. I'll give you a second one. A permit. All right. Those things have evaded me for the longest time. I've hooked both of them and never got one to the
1: boat. So I got the Marlin, but what was the second one? Permit. Permit. Oh, okay. Excellent. Oh, well, we should be able to get you on a permit down here. We can find a way to do that. <laughs> uh, that's excellent. They, they
0: always like to come around the boat, not in the boat.
1: Ah, uh, I understand that. I have that problem with sailfish. Yep. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That one I have no trouble with for some reason. Uh,
1: well, Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to do that. Those are great bucket list fish. And what you've been doing with Penn, of course, has been just absolutely fantastic, as has the entire history of what Penn does. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today about all of those great reels that Penn puts out. Thanks so much for being on the Rodcast.
0: Absolutely. The The one last thing that I would say is uh, to anybody who's listening is that we truly do listen to what everybody says. Um, so if you're on the forums, if you're on the Facebook groups and and all really any and all avenues, um, we pay attention to that. And we regularly interact with all the guys that are out there fishing our products in ways that we can improve it, things that we're missing. Um, so don't think that it falls on deaf ears whenever it's being said. You know, if if there is something that we can do better, by all means, let us know.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. Love to hear these, these fantastic companies with great histories, still really interested in what their uh, consumers are actually doing with product. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, my listening crew, I think it's time for a bourbon break, and since we're keeping things classic on this episode of the Rodcast, I thought I'd take a few pulls from a bottle of a truly classic bourbon for today's bourbon break. That's right, I'm going to be pouring from a bottle of Knob Creek Kentucky Street bourbon today, a bourbon that truly deserves the recognition as a classic. Knob Creek Kentucky Straight Bourbon is a small batch whiskey produced by Jim Beam, a company that is also a classic that is also nearly synonymous with bourbon itself. And that's because back in the late 18th century, the Baum family, that's B-O-H-M, Baum, immigrated to the U.S. from Germany and took up residence in Kentucky. Eventually, they changed the spelling and the pronunciation of their name to Beam. Now, Johannes Jacob Beam, who was born in 1760 and lived until 1834 when he was 74 years old, well, he was a farmer who began producing whiskey, and the style and method of his whiskey distillation and aging would be the foundation for what would become known as bourbon. Now, old Jacob Beam began selling his first barrels of corn whiskey around 1795, which he then called old Jake Beam's Sour Mash. So when it comes to bourbon, the Beam name is about as classic as it gets. And then in 1992, the Beam distillery started producing Knob Creek as a small batch bourbon. It sits with other th- three other Jim Beam small batch bourbons, Booker's, Bakers, and Basil Hayden. And you can check out the Basil Hayden bourbon break all the way back in episode 1.2 of the podcast. And as a matter of interest in my ongoing attention to the naming of whiskeys I talk about, the name Knob Creek refers to the creek that Abraham Lincoln grew up on. Now, if you'll recall, recall your elementary school learning, there was a famous letter that old, ba- old Abe penned to Samuel Haycraft of Elizabethtown, Kentucky back on June 4th, 1860, in which he writes, my earliest recollection is from the Knob Creek place. That's me doing Abe Lincoln. The Lincoln family lived on a 30 acres of a 228 acre Knob Creek farm from the time that the would-be president was two and a half until he was almost eight years old. So he grew up there, was a kid there. And so the folks over at Jim Beam wanted to honor that Kentucky connection of our 16th president. Now, the other thing you should know about the Knob Creek Pedigree is that it is a small batch bourbon created by Booker No, who's a sixth generation master distiller in the Beam family, and that No wanted to create a bourbon that tasted like a pre-prohibition whiskey. Now, interestingly, Knob Creek shares a very similar mash bill with Jim Beam. 75% corn, well above the required 51% required for a bourbon to be a bourbon, 13% rye, and 12% malted barley. Knob Creek is a 100 proof whiskey, so it's a solid high proof bourbon with a really bold flavor spectrum. It's also aged a bit longer than a lot of other bourbons as it spends nine years in the barrels. That longer exposure to the charred oak certainly contributes to the darker brownish coloration of the whiskey, which I would describe as dark brown sugar or dark caramel color that has tints of orange when the lights hit it. The nose is what you want from a good bourbon. It's sweet, like the smell of sugar and butter melting together on the stove. And there's a solid amount of spice here too. And that longer aging in the yolk comes through with the spice blending with a smoky accent. Now, the palate is robust. The Knob Creek is a big, full bourbon taste with that corn-heavy mash bill coming through and a sweetness that the nose introduced. That sweet is very caramel-like with some tinges of vanilla and maybe some maple syrup in there. The corn is also there and a buttery popcorn and the oak comes through with a smoky balance to wrap the sweetness in. That higher alcohol comes through and a nice peppery and cinnamon spiciness cradled in the sweetness of the palate. And the finish is clearly dominated by the caramel sweetness and the spice. I love the linger of the spice in the finish. It's a long finish that leaves you with a great oaky, smoky memory. All in all, the Knob Creek Straight Bourbon is a really good bourbon. It is a classic, as I noted before. It's one of those bottles you should have around because it's enjoyable and dependable. And those, my listening crew are my thoughts about Knob Creek Straight Bourbon. And as a final note, my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews ain't sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, cheap bastards, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how, developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. And speaking of... Let me give a quick shout out to the memory of the attic in Greenville, North Carolina that served up some great booze and some great bands between 1971 and 1985. I only got to experience it a dozen or so times in its final few years of existence, but man, I will never forget the music or the hangovers that that place provided. And so here's to lying, cheating, stealing, and drinking. If you're going to lie, lie for a friend. If you're going to cheat, cheat death. If you're going to steal, steal a heart. And if you're going to drink, have a drink with me. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid Let's get back to casting. Hey, all right, it is time for the Fishing Professors Top 10 list. This week, I'm counting down my favorite spoons for redfish. Not my favorite spoons overall, but those that are particularly hot for reds. And yeah, I get it. The go-to lure for every angler fishing for reds is the gold spoon, but that's such a generic demarcation. So I'm looking at some specific brands and models in this list. So just remember that even though a lot of these spoons are available in a variety of colors, I'm really thinking about them in their gold vestments, and I will continue to to comment about that. I'm also not looking at hybrid lures that incorporate metal blades into the design like spinner baits. I'm sticking to the essence of the fundamental spoon as best I can. And hey, as a professorial moment, I should say that spoons are one of the most important foundational lures for all anglers and that no matter what species you're targeting or where, you should always have a good selection of spoons with you. Spoons are not only fundamental to great fishing, they're also one of the two original artificial lures, first using shiny shells and then metal versions were, used, uh, were created in early maritime exploration when sailors would rig actual spoons from their ship's gallery, galleys with hooks and troll them behind their ships as a way of catching fish to supplement their onboard diets hence also why we maintain the name spoon for these metallic lures when many of them don't really actually look anything like say a tablespoon so let's you and me just spoon a little or as the tick says spoon here's the fishing professor's top 10 spoons for redfish Getting us started today in the lead off position at number 10 is that classic spoon, the Acme Little Clio spoon. Now, the Little Clio is a compact little spoon that earned its fame as a top tier lure for salmon and steelhead in the Great Lakes, but its applications extended to just about any kind of fishing that there is. Now, what makes the little Cleo so effective is that it's wider and shorter than most other spoons out there, so its action is very wobbly. And the visual effect comes across as an erratic, panicked, fat little bait fish. The Cleo's blade comes rigged with split rings, which allow the blade to move freely and independently from the hook. They are available in a dozen color patterns, but a lot of those colors are designed for salmon and steelhead. However, the gold and the copper versions, as I said about this whole list, They are ideal for reds. That said, though, there are a couple of painted versions that are also great, too, like the Gold Flow, the Copper Red, and the Red Gold. Now, do keep in mind that the Clios were designed for freshwater application, so I recommend that you rinse them after you use them in salt water. Okay, at number nine, I really like the Precision Tackle Flats Intruder Spoon. This is a brass-bladed spoon that has a single J-style hook soldered to the blade, making it a one-piece lure rather than a lot of the other spoons I'll talk about, like the Clio, which has the blade and hook as independent components that are joined by a split ring. The Precision Tackle Flats Intruder Spoon is finished with a high-quality jeweler's plating that creates a really shiny and reflective surface for lots of reflection. The Precision Tackle Flats Intruder Spoon also has a wire weed guard soldered to the spoon. That weed guard extends from the front of the spoon to just shy of the hook point. For those fishing for reds in grassier areas, that weedless aspect of the precision tackle flats intruder is a real plus. All right, at number eight, how about Aqua Dreams ADL Weedless Willow Spoon? Like the name says, this is a willow blade-shaped spoon, and unlike a lot of the other spoons in this list, it doesn't have a smooth surface, but a rigid textured finish. The single J-style hook on the Aqua Dream spoon is attached to the blade with a stainless steel screw, and there's a stainless split ring at the rigging end. It also has a great weed guard. I really like how this spoon flutters in the water on the drop and how it flutters on the retrieve. And yes, the Aqua Dream spoon is available available in about 6 color variations. Again, I tend to be a traditionalist when it comes to spoons for reds and I always recommend the gold spoon version. Oh, and by the way, the Aqua Dream Weedless Willow spoon boasts that it is known as the best spoon on the flats. Now, I don't know if that's a marketing tagline or if it's an earned accolade, but either way, I can confirm it's a damn fine spoon. All right, at number seven, let's go back to another great Acme Tackle Company product, and that's the Castmaster Spoon. I have loved these spoons for a long time. This is a spoon with a different kind of design than most of the Willow Blades or Colorado Blades or other blade spoons on this list because the spoon is really more like a slice, a thick metal. They are aerodynamic, and they cast amazingly well. They're a little bit heavier than most other spoons out there. They're rigged with a split-ring connector to a treble hook, and a bored out hole at the rigging end that has a split ring for tying off to your main line or your leader if you're using leader. They come in a variety of finishes including a plain shiny finish, a hammered finish, a foiled finish, and a flash tape finish. There's also a version with a small rattle welded to the spoon. They also come in a wide range of color options but again for reds I'm recommending the copper or the gold version. I will say as a side note that I also love throwing the chrome for uh, the chrome blue version for Spanish mackerel, but that's another top 10. All right, add number six. I like the Williams Wabbler Spoon. Now, this is a spoon with a lot of history. It was first developed more than 100 years ago and was the spoon that really launched the Williams Lure Company. This is a company that still produces more than a dozen spoon varieties. Now, the Wabbler was initially designed for freshwater application, particularly for lake trout, but its reputation spread and it became commonly used or as a lure for northern pike, musky, walleye, and salmon. And that reputation expanded further, and the wobbler became known as a great lure for inshore application as well. Now, the wobbler, like all of Williams's spoon, are stamped from premium polished brass. They then use a multi-step plating operation to coat the spoon with a genuine silver or 24-karat gold finish that Williams' lures are renowned for. They then add a plated electroclear outer coat, which is then baked on. This process doesn't dull the finish as a lacquer would. It does render Williams silver and copper in half-and-half half finishes saltwater resistant and basically tarnish-proof. They are rigged with split rings and a single treble hook. They come in a range of sizes and more than 30 colors. But again, for reds, look for the gold and copper and related colors. Okay, coming in at the midway point. Let's just go with a tried-and-true, old, reliable, never-fails-you spoon, and that's the Johnson Silver Minnow Spoon. This is a spoon that has the reputation as a classic go-to spoon, a tackle box standard, and there's a reason for that. It's a reliable spoon, and it's an effective spoon. It's an elongated and tapered willow blade with a soldered hook and weed guard. Its side-to-side wobble gives it great action, and it is an effective spoon for casting, jigging, jigging, or even trolling comes in a range of sizes and about 18 color options, but again, it's the gold version I keep around for reds. Pro tip too, add a plastic grub tail to the hook for a little extra action when targeting reds. All right, at number four, how about the Bomber Saltwater Grade Houdat Weedless Rattlin Spoon? Unlike several of the spoons on this list that found their way into saltwater application after having had success in freshwater locations, the Bomber Saltwater Grade Houdat Weedless Rattlin Spoon was designed for redfish in those amazing Louisiana inshore waters, hence the reference to the New Orleans Saints in the spoon's name as well. These spoons cast far and run shallow for that skinny water. The hudat spoon features a solid weed guard that is tipped with these innovative dual-pitch rattles that produce both high and low pitches to help provoke the strike. There are also versions available that attach to the rattles on the end of the weed guard Is a second smaller Colorado-style blade for added spoony flash. They are rigged with a saltwater-grade, soldered J-style hook and come in a handful of great colors, and while, yes, the gold is my pref- preference generally, as I've said multiple times, I'd actually encourage you to check out the gold-black-orange version of the Houdat weedless ratman spoon when you're thinking redfish. All right, that brings us to number 3, and as we know, 3 is a magic number, so let's go with the Gator Weedless Spoon with a Trailer. This is a fantastic weedless-style willow blade spoon, specifically designed for inshore application, and there are two specific features of the Gator Spoon that I particularly love. The first is the weighting of the spoon, which unlike other similarly shaped spoons out there, keeps the spoon from rolling over in a 360-degree spin. Instead, the gator spoon wobbles back and forth rather than spinning. Second, the hook on this spoon is positioned on the spoon blade so as to allow you to add a soft body tail or shrimp tip or other additional attractant. So basically, the spoon is a hybrid spoon that has a full weedless spoon design with the addition of a soft body, like a grub tail or a curly tail. At the end of the hook, where you put this, I really like how it's set up. I really like this aspect of the gator weedless spoon too And I like fishing the gold version with a root beer and gold flaky curly tail. This is a spoon I've been consistently using for a very long time. I will tell you too that before they shortened the pier at Sebastian Inlet, I used to cast the Big Gator 5 and 6 ounce gold spoons off the end of the pier for Big Bull Reds. And that's just a way of me saying that it's not just the Gator weedless spoon I like for Reds, but the full range of spoon offerings from Gator Lures. And besides, it gives me the chance to seamlessly work in a well-deserved Go Gators! All right, I'm going to throw a curve in here for number two, and I'm going to go with an innovative twist on the traditional spoon. So coming in as my second favorite spoon for reds, I'm pointing to Live Target's Flutter Sardine. Unlike every other spoon in this list, the Flutter Sardine is not a metal spoon. It is an inventive take on the concept of a spoon. The Flutter Sardine is part of Live Target's Injected Core Technology series, and what the Flutter Sardine is is a realistic sardine Looking lure with metallic finish that is encased in a spoon-like shaped exoskeleton, exoskin, excuse me, that then moves the lure around like a spoon. The lure features a strong treble hook that is wrapped with a bucktail teaser. This innovative design won the iCast best new saltwater lure in 2019, and there's a good reason why. It's a fantastic lure for saltwater species inshore, nearshore, and offshore. I've caught mackerel, dolphin, snapper, and many other species on the flutter sardine. And of course, I've consistently caught reds with it, otherwise it wouldn't be on this list. This new take on a spoon design bridges the tradition of old spoon craftsmanship with a new, trad- a new generation of tech-savvy materials and manufacturing strategies to create the first-ever anatomically precise spoons. Now, they come in four-size options, these six-color options, all of which I use. But for reds, I really recommend the gold-black pattern. It really is a game-changer for spoons. All right, so that brings us to my favorite spoon for redfish. But before I give you that insider information... Let's get a quick recap of the top nine, just in case you weren't taking notes. All right, for our recap, at number 10, Acme's Little Cleo Spoon. Number nine, Precision Tackle's Flats Intruder Spoon. At eight, Aqua Dreams ADL Weedless Willow Spoon. At seven, the Castmaster Spoon. At six, Williams Wobbler Spoon. At five, Johnson's Silver Minnow Spoon. At four, Bomber Saltwater Grade hoodat Weedless Rattlin Spoon hoodat. At three, the Gator Weedless Spoon with a trailer. Again, go Gators. At number two, Live Targets Flutter and Sardine. And that brings us to my favorite redfish spoon, the Johnson Original Sprite. And maybe you were thinking that after the Live Target Flutter Sardine innovation, I'd throw out some high-tech, amazing take on the spoon. But the truth of it is, there is nothing more effective for targeting redfish than just a plain, simple, basic, reliable, dependable, rugged, durable Johnson Original Sprite. There is no doubt that the Johnson Original Sprite is the go-to lure for redfish. And yes, speckled trout as well. This is the essence of spoon fishing. Just a great elongated willow blade, a split ring, and a treble hook. Now, the Johnson Sprite also adds a small red plastic Colorado blade-shaped thing on the split ring, adding a drop of red to the presentation and the treble hook comes with a short red plastic skirt. And over the years, I've become more and more convinced that these small red plastic additions to the spoon are the only reason that these spoons catch so many redfish. I have no evidence of that other than to say I consistently catch redfish on the Johnson Original Sprite with these little red jewels to a greater degree than I do with other basic spoon designs, even though they're all... They all will produce reds. The Johnson Original Sprite just seems to do better, and I think it's because of those little red tags. The Johnson Original Sprite is such a fundamentally perfect spoon. It is, in fact, the spoon that I always want to have with me, no matter what inshore fishing I'm doing. But they are certainly the only spoons that I really want when I'm targeting reds. They come in three size options and two color options, gold and silver, and that's it. Nothing fancy, no day glow. Just pure, basic fish-catching spoon. And that's why the Johnson Original Sprite is my favorite spoon for targeting redfish. So those are my top 10 spoons for targeting reds. As usual, if you want to let me know your thoughts about this week's top 10, if you have a redfish spoon you think I should be looking at, Or if you're a manufacturer and you want to alert me to your lure, just send me an email at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just shoot me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. That's it for the top 10 list for this week. Let's get back to casting spoons for redfish or at least a little more podcasting. Well, 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 I think that just about brings us to the end of another Rodcast, but I'm not going to say goodbye because like Peter Pan says, never say goodbye because goodbye means going away and going away means forgetting. And frankly, I don't want you to forget me because I want you to come back next week for a new episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Hey, speaking of not saying goodbye, I have to admit that while I love that quote from J.M. Barry who wrote Peter Pan, No, you simple-minded, waterlogged heathens. Disney did not write Peter Pan. The Scottish novelist J.M. Barrie created Peter and Wendy and the Lost Boys and Neverland and Tinkerbell. Mmm, Tinkerbell. He created them back in 1902 in his novel, The Little White Bird, from which chapters 13 through 18 were republished in 1906 as Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens, and then also in his 1904 West End stage play called Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, which was then expanded into his 1911 novel, Peter and Wendy but none of that was my point about not saying goodbye. What I started to say is that my mom never says goodbye to me or my brothers because she doesn't like the finality of it, much like Peter Pan. Instead, she always tells us she loves us and that she'll see us soon or talk with us soon. So since my mom is always right, I won't say goodbye this week. I'll just say I'll talk at you soon. Hey, before we go, though, I do want to thank Ben Joyce of Pure Fishing and Pen Reels that incredibly informative conversation about Penn and about fishing reels in general. It really is great to get so much knowledge from such a classic reel manufacturer as Penn and for Ben to have shared that knowledge with us. I do hope too that you enjoyed my thoughts and words about Knob Creek, another classic, and I hope that my countdown of my top 10 spoons for targeting redfish gave you something to think about there too. Again, another classic. Now, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The current is strong. I say again, the current is strong. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday next week. And I hope you and all of the members of my listening crew will share links to the Rodcast with everyone you know. And of course, if you've got a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid.inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter Instagram and find us. friend us on facebook at inventifishing and be sure to check out all the great video content over there on the inventifishing youtube channel which includes great gear reviews new product introductions a whole bunch of other great content and access to this podcast i will be back next week with another episode and until then this is sid Dobrin, the fishing professor fish on
0: The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!